Today we're going to start out just a little bit different. We're going to start out with kind of a, oh, I don't know, you want to call it a riddle? You want to call it a quiz? Um, I'm, I like to think of it as a riddle. And uh, Jeff, if you would, bring the riddle up. It's just three pictures. That's all it is, three pictures. First picture is the tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, an artist, it's a picture of an artist's picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. That's one. Next picture is a picture of Tim Kiviajo's picture of Jesus with kids, which is actually taken off of our, our east wall or south wall over here in one of the Sundays in one of the rooms, one of the classrooms. And then the third picture is a picture of our congregation taken some number of days ago, years ago now, because there's a number of people who are no longer with us, but it's a blessing to remember them. And I don't recall the context in which this was taken, but um, we're just thankful, and it is the congregation here of God's people. And what Brenda had in mind, or is that Brenda? Is that Brenda? Is that Brenda? Yeah, what Brenda had in mind, I have no idea. When uh, I think she thought the first picture was the one you make funny faces instead of the second one. And, but no, I'm only kidding her. Uh, but that's it. So three things. Let's run through them again, okay? What's the theme in these things? What's the commonality? First one again, please, Jeff. All right. Tabernacle in the wilderness. Second one. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Picture of uh, Tim's picture of Jesus with the kids. And then the third one is our congregation. Got it? Okay, now if you have it figured out, and some of you, I believe, probably already do, if you have it figured out, tell, whisper it to somebody next to you, write it down on a piece of paper. Because when we come back to talk about it, you'll be like, that was like, we've known that for years, all right? And so you won't be real satisfied. Some people are going to learn something new from this, and they'll leave here satisfied that they learned something new. Some of you might be struggling with, uh, well, I already knew all of that. So here, I'll give you an opportunity to write it down, tell someone, and then when it gets revealed, you'll say, see, and you can be satisfied at how smart you are, okay? So some of us can be satisfied we learn. Some of us can be satisfied that we are smart. Ephesians chapter 2. We're in the book of Ephesians today in our series as we continue to move along. And as we get to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to remind ourselves, magnificent, magnificent passage of Scripture. As you hit Ephesians 2, as you're moving through it, and, and I don't know how to describe Ephesians as anything other than dense. It, there is so much packed into those first chapters that... It takes a, would take a long time to unpack them and to understand whether it's a sentence, a phrase, a concept. It's packed in there. Now, one of the things we're familiar with in Ephesians chapter 2 is, And you who were dead in trespasses and sin, he has made alive. That's 2 verse 1. We're familiar with that. And the other thing is, if we've done any Bible track work at all, we know that most or many will hit on Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Okay, so... Uh, we, we're familiar with that. I want to move into a section of Ephesians we're not quite as familiar with. And it says this, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul, in those first few verses, he's describing, as he's laying out the gospel, he reminds them, don't forget, you were Gentiles, you were not part of the nation of Israel. And the reference is there to uncircumcision and circumcision. Circumcision was a, a sign of a covenant given to the Israelites. And so the circumcision references the Israelites, and the uncircumcision references the Gentiles who were outside of that. And they were, being Gentiles, they were not part of the promises, the commonwealth, all of that stuff that God was revealing through the redemptive work in history that he's doing, where he had selected Abraham to become the father of this nation. They were outside of it unless they converted to it. But he finishes that with, but now you've been brought near by his blood. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And as we consider that just briefly, he is our peace. Who? Christ. And he's made both one. Those who are outside the covenant promises, those who are inside the covenant promises, he brought them together because he tore down the law that created the enmity, that kept the two apart, that's like, hey, we have the revelation from God, you don't. So the Israelites like, yeah, we're on the inside track, we know what's gone. The Gentiles are on the, say, we're on the outside track, who do you think you are to tell us what you know truth to be? And so there's this tension that could exist between them. And he's saying, Christ came, took away the law, drew everybody together, reconciled them both to God, both. To reconcile means to put your accounts in order, So that in one body, through the cross, they come together in peace. And there is no longer, he put to death the enmity. And he finishes that section by saying, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So that's leading up to where we want to be for today, friends. But you need to see that background as we come now to verse 19. Now, therefore, in light of the fact that the two, Gentile and Jew, uncircumcised, circumcised, have been brought together in one through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, though you had been, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You have become a part of that redemptive work that God is doing. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. How interesting is that? 
I want, before we go any further with this, I want to remind us how we've been thinking this through for a couple of weeks now. Because it all, it all leads us to this week and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. On March 31st, we had for our verse 2 Corinthians 5.21, and there it said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what we pointed out in that was the immensity of that truth. In that when Christ hung on the cross, became sin for us, that was not something that took God by surprise, and I've already referenced it. This redemptive work that God is, that God is, is playing out for us in time-space history, of which we are a part, this redemptive work was in his mind, the scripture is very clear, before the world even existed. That's how big this thing is. We think we go to things that are big events, they're big stuff, they're, wow, that was exciting, it was loud, it was crazy. Whatever it is where we think, man, that was pretty amazing, 10,000 people there. Nothing, nothing compared to this redemptive plan that God was going to put in place. And it was in his mind before the world even was created. Okay, that's immensity. Then last week... We looked at Paul's exhortation to the Galatians who were getting a little confused about what was going on here. And they were starting to bring law back into their understanding of the gospel. And Paul recounted for them how he had corrected Peter on this very issue. And he had told Peter, he said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. It's, we could, if, we can, if we can become righteous by the law... Yeah, well, then there was no need for Christ to die. And why are we preaching Christ died for us? Because it has no meaning if we can become righteous by the law. It's one or the other. And only one or the other. And in that we said simplicity. We focused on the word simplicity. How you don't need to, We don't need to distract ourselves with a lot of other things. Either Christ is our hope or something else is. But anything else that is is not capable. So we stay with Christ. So we have immensity, we have simplicity, and then our verse today, in whom, Jesus, in whom, that is Jesus Christ, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And the word I'd like us to just focus on for a little bit today is the word community. We've been brought together, it says as a dwelling place for God. We've pointed out he's our peace. He's made both one. He has reconciled both to God, Jew and Gentile. He is the cornerstone. And some of you will know that the cornerstone, unlike cornerstones to us, cornerstones to us are something that's decorative that perhaps will tell the date the building was built. The cornerstone in that day was the First stone that was laid and everything squared off of it. Everything was oriented to it and by it. That's its role as the cornerstone. And that's who Christ is. He is the one from whom all of this organizes and arranges and is put in order. And he says that we're becoming a holy temple. Being built as God one by one places people into this entity 
of redemptive history. And he uses the analogy here of a building. And as one by one, each one is fitted together in a particular place, in a particular role, in a particular time in, in, in history when, they, when they've been on the earth and now God has redeemed them and they become a part of this thing. This temple is being built, it's growing, which gives you the idea that it's dynamic, that it is alive, it's being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So God now, the Spirit of God now, is within the context of the church, in this time frame, within the context of the church, God's presence is being made known in a real and dynamic way through his people. And he is manifesting himself in and through his people. Because that is now, as we've been put together, is where the Spirit of God is going to dwell. So think about that, friends. Here's, here's how i just like to put it in the notes for you. The community of faith is... The temple of the Holy Spirit, or tabernacle. I may move between the two of them, because I do in my thinking. The community of faith is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God is bringing us into community as his temple to dwell among us, to transform us, and to continue his redemptive work. Now, when we think about that, that perhaps raises some interesting thoughts in our thinking. And if I could, Jeff, could I we come back to that PowerPoint now? Did any of you figure out the theme? All right, let's, let's, um, let's look at this. In the Old Covenant, remember this is unfolding through time, and in the Old Covenant... In Exodus 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, while they were in Mount Sinai, they're, they're going to be moving towards the promised land. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Huh, interesting. A place for God to manifest his presence, that he would dwell among them. And he went on and he gave them very precise instructions what it should be like. And if we drop down a few verses later, and they're not coming up. I want you to pay attention to the picture. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. This mercy seat is effectively a cover to a small ark. Not the ark of Noah, which was huge, but a small ark, which is basically a box. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, uh, one piece with the mercy seat, with this cover. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Now we get... Get this picture in our minds. I've told you this before. If you want a pretty good depiction of it, go ahead and watch the movie Indiana Jones and um, The Lost Ark. Okay, That's, That will show you a great depiction of what this, similar to what this would have looked like. 
So you have these two cherubim, that's angels, okay, facing each other, their wings reaching forward or out to the center of the, uh, and above the center of the mercy seat. Uh, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Picture this now, and then God says this, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. So he says, have them build me a tabernacle that I can dwell among them. More specifically, as he goes on, he said, you're going to create this ark. Within, on top of the ark is going to be this thing called the mercy seat. And right there, I'm going to manifest myself to you in significant ways. I'm going to speak to you. Now, what we want to note is, as we look at this, this the mercy seat would have been in here. You can't see it from here, but most of you know this. This is divided in two sections, and in the back section, and if you were inside of this, you could see there's a curtain hanging down about here, but in the back section, that's where this ark and this mercy seat are, and God says, I will meet you there. That's one. Old Testament, God dwelling at the mercy seat. So a little time went on, centuries actually, okay, but this is, this is temporary, it's, it's movable, And so David had in his mind to build a solid structure, something more honoring to the Lord. God did not let him do that, and uh, instead had his son do that. So his son, we won't have a picture of it, it's not necessary. Uh, Just picture, it's the same layout, it's simply now a solid structure. And in 2 Chronicles, we have written for us what happened when that structure was dedicated. It came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. There was a lot of noise going on there. They weren't afraid to be excited in their worship that the house The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That is that permanent temple that they built to house the ark. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, Here's what's interesting about this. God was among mankind because that's what he said when he first gave instruction for the first temporary structure. He said, have them make a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. But his presence is manifested inside of a building that, here's how Hebrews describes it. When these things had thus been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So here's what we have. Whether this movable structure or the permanent structure that we also read about, God is manifesting his presence at the back of it in the presence of the mercy seat. Now, they don't go in there, in and out all the time, saying, hey, God, how you doing? Once a year, once a year, the high priest was allowed in, no one else. 
And in this particular element, as we look at it, understand that around this, this is where the people of Israel camped, all around this, so that this tabernacle would be right in their midst. But they didn't get to go in. When they brought their offerings, they brought their offerings to the door. And the priests would bring their offerings and offer them here. And only a designated priest could go in all the way here once a year. So what is, is God present and real? Is he dwelling among them? Absolutely, he is dwelling among them. In fact, this is that time frame where God manifests himself with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. There is a real manifestation of the presence of God, but there's only one who will walk in and see that mercy seat and have the privilege of that interaction there as to putting the blood on the mercy seat and all the things that were prescribed for them. So God was among mankind, but not directly accessible. They had to go through a priesthood to be represented into that. That is under the old covenant. Then John tells us, An interesting thing in his gospel, he says this. And if you want to bring that second picture up, you can. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, John 1 1, and you're familiar with this. And the Word was God. Now, that word is a reference to Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh. And what? Dwelt. Among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Remember that incident where the disciples tried to shoo the kids away and said, He's too busy for kids. And Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Imagine the kids held in the arms of Jesus. Imagine the presence that they were in and so safe in his arms and so loved and so welcome. But God incarnate now is dwelling among men. He is accessible at this point. John is very careful to point that out. I think it really meant a lot to John to to make it clear. Because John's the only one who gives us the account of Thomas, who doubted at first when they said they'd seen the risen Savior. And he's like, oh no, till I put my hands on his side. And John records for us how when he appeared to Thomas, he said, Thomas, come, put your hands right here. Right here, feel this. I am real. I truly have raised, okay, that which we have seen and heard he will later write about in his epistle. First John, read just, just read the first few verses of First John, that which we have seen, that which we have heard of the word of life, which our hands have handled. This is what we declare to you. God dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's Jesus And then, if we could, with what we've been talking about, because this thing has sent us off back in this direction. Jeff, give us that last picture. 
What did our text tell us today? In the church, God is dynamically working with, upon, and among mankind. And he said that we're being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So now the spirit of God is creating us to be a dwelling place, a temple, a tabernacle that we collectively, each being given a place in that, each being a a brick in that, if you will, each having a place that God has specifically by his spirit identified, there is your place in this structure that I am building. And I'm building it that I might dwell in it by my spirit. Isn't that interesting? Do you get the theme? Here's the theme. It's all about God dwelling among men. I think there's something else that I hadn't thought of before, but I think is accurate. Jeff, if we could go back to the first one. As God is here, and he said he's going to meet with them over the mercy seat, I do believe that the manifestation of that, of what he's intending to communicate, is the Father. The one to whom, ultimately, this answer of, you're not righteous before me, and Christ will satisfy that. But how about this? Here's where God is manifesting himself. The Father is manifesting himself among men. Jeff, one screen, please. Here's the Son manifesting himself among men. One more screen, Jeff. And the Spirit manifesting himself among men. In each case, dwelling among men. Each each of these, of, of um, Jesus referred to his own body as a temple, okay? Each of these places where God is manifesting himself in dynamic ways among men. So, uh, having gone through that, let's just consider a couple of thoughts. Each person, this is from a, just what we would call a Trinitarian perspective, each person of the Trinity has been revealed as dwelling among men. Isn't that interesting? And in each step, there's a closer proximity, if you will, with mankind. So, as we consider the question of, does Scripture really teach a triune God? I believe the question of how, they, how God dwells with us speaks to the issue of, yes, there is a trinity. Now, we've got to go other places to understand that in its fullness, But throughout three major segments of redemptive history, a different person of the Trinity is identified as dwelling among among men. Secondly, I want to speak to us just personally as a church. We have had an incredible history. We really have. We have seen things that are quite unusual. We have been blessed beyond imagination and I have said this this is nothing new I have said this I believed it when I first said it and I'm believing it now our journey thus far in all of its rich blessings is because the spirit was uniting us in community we learned we learned years ago the hard way That if we were making personal accusations against one another, if we were questioning 
uh, one another as far as really loving Jesus. If it was easy for us to make public attacks with, against one another in meetings and, and different contexts, we learned then that nothing was happening among us. And then there was a moment that came when somebody had the courage to say, we have to do this different. And they took the first step to do it different. And that somebody was our chairman, and he wasn't the chairman then. And he had the courage to try something new. And it began a process and brought us to a place where I have said to so many people, I don't know how many times I've said it through the years, I am completely convinced that the reason we've been able to get where we're at is because we are not tearing one another apart. We are not shredding one another. We are not questioning one another's motives. We are seeking together, believing that God is at work among the redeemed, that he is at work, and somehow he's going to guide us corporately. And And I think it is in that context as he's been building us as part of that tabernacle for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we've been able to hear his voice. And in that, make decisions that allow us to move forward and, and risk big things. I recall the days when we didn't deal that way. And honestly, friends, we made stupid decisions. But God has given us a journey that has been Wonderful, And the reason I say all of that is one to remind us of this theology that the Spirit of God is placing us in, the, in this, this thing called the, the temple for, the, for His dwelling. And to remind us of that one, that we, that we uh, are aware and give Him proper glory for, for what we've seen happen. That's number one. We are living this out. But also to encourage us, let's not lose that. Let's not lose that we know how to sit in meetings with one another where we don't attack, we don't undermine, we don't impugn. We simply talk about ideas, believing that God is at work in each one of us who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, out of that, I believe we can continue to hear the Spirit's leading who is dwelling among us. All right? Great. Another thing we might want to consider as we look at those, we won't bring it up again, but those three. The Father dwelt among us through the tabernacle. The Son dwelt among us incarnate in the body. And the Spirit now dwells among us in us as a temple, each one of us. Do you get the idea God maybe wants to be connected to people? Do you think maybe he has a desire to be in fellowship with us? Isn't that what was lost at the fall? We lost our fellowship with, with God. And now we have an expression through each person of the Trinity that, hey, there's a desire to be in fellowship with us. That's a cool thing. That's what this whole week is going to be about as God made that ultimate way through the Son as applied by the Spirit um, to bring us into fellowship with himself. But with that, knowing that God does desire the fellowship of men. And people to be in union, in relationship with him. Could we by faith believe this? That next week, Sunday morning, 
He wants to draw some people to himself. Met some Easter Sunday morning services being celebrated around the world. And is it possible that he would desire, if we'll be his vessels, to draw some to himself right here? As we glorify God for the work of of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, is it possible that he would desire to draw some to himself right here? I think it is. I think we'd be foolish to dismiss that, that no, God, he's done working with us. No, I think he wants people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So if we believe that by faith, based upon what we see about each person of the Trinity, dwelling among men in time, space, redemptive history, how about this? Let's invite some. And then when we're here, let's love all. Because God's doing an amazing, amazing thing. The immensity of a plan begun before the world existed. The simplicity of a plan that it's in Jesus Christ, nothing else. And the community that he is seeking through that. And we get to be a part of it. Wow. That, that can set our tone for this week. So... There's somebody in your circle of influence, and I've got this on the back of the bulletin. Even if they don't accept your invitation, God's using you to remind them that he's there and he's drawing people to himself. So who is it that this week you could say, I'd really like to invite, would really like to invite this individual whether casually, because you see them all the time, or you call them up, whatever it is. But we're all clear now, right? Service next week is 10 o'clock. Donuts are at 9 o'clock. Bring them for donuts. Why? Because then you can visit with them and introduce them to other people. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Awesome opportunity we have to be a part of what God is doing. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your desire to be in fellowship with us. Thank you that you have worked out a perfect plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, administered to our minds as we, as we come to understand it and receive it through your word and as your spirit makes it alive to us. Father, thank you for that. And may we be energized this week to consider how you would use us to bring people to hear the magnificent message of the victory in Jesus Christ that has been won. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.